Hello and welcome to God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer to see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. This week we've got something a little different for you. In association with Media Magazine, we've launched the Media Mag podcast. Every month, Phil and I will be talking about important concepts from film and media and trying to talk about them in the simplest way possible. So what we've done is, we're dropping the first episode into the God in Film feed for you to have a listen if you haven't already. We hope you like it, and if you could subscribe to the Media Mag podcast, that would help us out so much. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Media Mag podcast, the podcast for students of film and media or anyone who just wants to know more about media stuff. I'm media coordinator and education writer, Giles Goff. And I'm photographer and filmmaker, Phil Coleman. And in this podcast, we'll be taking some of the trickiest concepts in media and breaking them down into simple terms. But first, a little bit about ourselves. Phil and I have been making short films together for about nine years. and that long. Yeah, yeah. And we've been working on creative stuff ever since. Mm -hmm. Before I was a writer, I taught English and media for a little over a decade, whilst Phil has an MA in filmmaking and basically knows everything there is to know about the practical side of things. In short, (laughs) I'm the academic one, he's the technical one. It's a good dynamic and it works really well. (laughs) Yeah. So our first ever question comes from Lydia in Hampstead School. Hi, I'm Lydia from Hampstead School. What is postmodernism? So today, in our section called The Theory Drop, we'll be looking at postmodernism, where it came from, who were some of the key thinkers, and what it looks like. Phil, if you had to sum up postmodernism in 10 seconds, what would you say? I'd say I'd need more than 10 seconds, to be honest, Giles. It's uh, it's quite a a broad concept, uh, which I don't know if you can sum it up in 10 seconds. Okay, well, by the end of this section, you'll be able to define it in six seconds, okay? Four four (laughs) seconds to spare. Four seconds to just play around with, if you want. Yeah, four seconds just to bank those four seconds for another day, you know. (laughs) Okay, now it's time for the theory drop. I'm just imagining there's like, you know, there's big dust cloud, smoke. We we walk out holding books. It's, it's beautiful, you know. <laughs> so just to let you know before we get into it, guys, uh, this act- this section will contain some mild spoilers for Blade Runner and WandaVision. So if you ask an academic what is postmodernism, you're almost certainly going to come away with it needing a dictionary to wade through and a reading list as long as you're armed. And what I'm going to try and do today here is just give you some pointers on where to look to research further and give you like a basic understanding of the concept. Firstly, let's look at the title, Postmodernism. Is it just me or is that like a rubbish title? It feels very... um very hospital walls, very clinical, you know? <laughs> I think that's the best way I could probably describe it. Yeah, because modern, now. So how are we dealing with something that is after now? Surely that's the future, right? But to get your head around this, to really get a good understanding of it, you need to know what modernism as a movement is because postmodernism right. is relating to modernism. In essence, if postmodernism is the cheeky teenager, then modernism is the parent having the midlife crisis. You with me? 
<laughs> That's a good way of putting it. I like that. Thanks. So basically, right, modernism as a movement comes about in the early part of the 20th century. And you can sort of sum it up as like a loss of belief in things that we'd traditionally place our trust. So God, society, government, authority, personal relationships, all that sort of thing. Now, just a, a quick question for you. What happened at the start of the 20th century that just might make people lose their faith in all these institutions? Um, well, there was that big war. Um, there which was. I think, there was quite there was a big that, war. In fact, you could some called it the Great War, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and with good reason yeah, as well. It, yeah. was, it affected pretty much everybody. Yeah, exactly. So if you imagine you're a soldier in the First World War, your generals... Uh, who are sort of supporting the, the government that put you there, who told you that this would all be over by Christmas. The the generals are now sending you over the front line into enemy fire where you, where you or your mates are going to be mown down. If you're lucky enough to survive, there's not really the support system in place when you get home. Oh, and by the way, your girlfriend, who you love dearly, has just written you a Dear John letter. So it's not really that surprising that come the 1920s, there are a lot of people who no longer really believe in God. They don't really believe in love. They don't trust their governments anymore. They was called a lost generation, right? You know, they, they were basically sort of more interested in sort of drinking and having a good time than anything else and the lost generation was basically the millennials of today and you know, of, of the of the past sorry sure yeah that makes sense so we get this strong sense of like disillusionment you with me of course i mean it was yeah. it was it was horrifying <laughs> and 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 i'd be mm. I'd, I'd want i'd wonder about their mental health, they weren't depressed, you know, so they must be hiding. So around about this time, we also get Friedrich Nietzsche's belief that God is dead coming out, Marx's criticism of capitalist society. Obviously, that's been around for a while, but it really starts to sort of pick up steam even more, and especially after we heard the the Russian Revolution. And this feeling related to this, this shift in perspective often tend to have a sense of like disappointment or betrayal and a rebellion against like these modern establishments. So yeah. if you think of it like this, if modernism is beginning to question authority, then postmodernism is making fun of authority to its face. <laughs> so postmodernism takes this concept of questioning traditional structures and just takes it a step further. There's this other critic called Roland Barthes. Have you ever heard of an essay called uh, Death of the Author? Yes, I have heard of that. I can't say I've read it, but I've heard of it. First of all, it was originally it's written in French, and it's a it's a play on uh, Le Mort d'Arthur, but it's Le Mort d'Arthur, so the death of Arthur, the King Arthur story. Oh, I see. I get you. Right. The death of the author instead. Exactly, yeah. So in it, he went against the tradition when he said that a writer's opinions, intentions, or interpretations of their own work is no more valid than anyone else's. You've seen Blade Runner, yeah? Absolutely. It's one of my favourite films. So to give a, a, a simple example, that means that just because Ridley Scott thinks Deckard is a replicant doesn't mean that you, the viewer, have to think this if you don't want to. Whatever's in the text is what's important. What the creator of the text thinks isn't that much of an issue. Interpretation 
is one of the great things about art and about cinema is that the audience can make their own decisions. That sort of autonomy is kind of crucial for its longevity, in my opinion. Absolutely, absolutely. So audiences are free to interpret a work however they choose, irrespective of whatever the creator thinks. So the death of the author is the next step after Nietzsche's God is dead statement. And with it comes a need to kind of like push the boundaries on what a text is. So postmodernism can be found in literature, architecture, art, uh, all this sort of stuff. But we're really just going to focus on film and TV because that's the stuff that we actually know about. Okay. There's a few different key things that you tend to see with postmodernism. So you tend to see metatextuality, uh, intertextuality, pastiche and parody, uh, like a self-reflexivity and a mixing of genres. And we're just going to look at one or two of those terms and really try and break it down what they are. Okay. So how would you define metatextuality? So I would describe metatextuality as if a piece of art is metatextual, then it is kind of aware of the fact that it is a piece of art and can reference itself and other things in 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 the wider media in the wider world yeah (laughs) absolutely spot on okay metatextuality is where text draws attention to the fact that it's a text it points the the (laughs) process of its own creation let's take uh an example from a fairly recent film I, Tonya. Did you ever see the trailer for that? I saw the trailer for it, but I never actually got around to watching it. I mean, there's so many films. Oh, <laughs> you need to check it out. It's it's phenomenal film. So there's one bit in the trailer where Margot Robbie, in the title role of Tonya, she basically is chasing her boyfriend through the house, carrying a shotgun, and it <laughs> says, and, and she's shooting at him. And whilst she's changing cartridges, Tonya looks straight at the camera and says, I never did this. You know, so it's I a... I think I have seen this. Is she like a figure yeah. skater or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, the one. Yeah, I have seen it. I'm just, I'm just so... an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a brilliant example of metatextuality because the character is disagreeing with the story as it happens. This links very closely with the death of the author by making us question the reliability of the narrator. So we as an audience need to trust the storytellers in films or else we run the risk of rejecting the whole thing. So one of the things you see in metatextuality is like the unreliable narrator. You know, we we normally have to rely on exactly what the narrator's saying, that we trust that they are telling us the truth. And an unreliable narrator is really sort of questioning that and kind of undermining it as you go along. Mm-hmm. Another brilliant example of metatextuality. Have you ever seen Stranger Than Fiction? I have not. Um, and I definitely haven't seen that one okay. this time. <laughs> so that is a massively underrated film. It's one of my absolute favourites. It's got Emma Thompson narrating the life of Will Ferrell's character, Harold Crick. And there's a brilliant shot in the trailer where we see Harold brushing his teeth. And in the voiceover, it says, When other minds would fantasise about their upcoming day, Harold just counted brushstrokes. And then at that point, Harold stops, spits out the toothpaste and says, All right, who just said Harold just counted brushstrokes? I'm an idiot. I have seen that film. <laughs> <laughs> I forget I forget what I've okay. seen. I forget what I've seen. Well, yes, yeah. I have seen that film now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's, it's absolutely excellent. Yeah. And when you said Emma Thompson and Will Ferrell, I was like, oh, yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I love that, that film with my whole heart. That's fantastic. Obviously, when we hear a voiceover we're, and we see like non-diegetic sound being used in it, we don't expect the character to then be able to respond to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I love that. I thought that was such a great device in that film. Yeah. And it just did, it just, again, just that, 
that whole thing informed the entire plot, and it was wonderful. Loved it. Absolutely, just hooks you in right from the start. So we have a we have a character who breaks a narrative film convention by showing awareness of like this omniscient narrator. The film mm. then goes on to follow Harold as he tries to find the apparent author of his life and tries to get her to change the ending because in it he's he finds out from the voiceover that he's going to die. Yeah, he's like what? <laughs> so it's a film that's metatextual because it lets the protagonist know he's in the story and draws attention to the the absurdity of the non-diegetic voiceover. Mm-hmm. Metasexuality can really force audiences to examine the very forms of filmmaking and the assumptions it brings with it. But like, what happens when these questions go beyond the style of the filmmaking and starts to influence the content of the narratives? Have you ever heard of a theorist, Jean-Francois Lyotard? The name rings a bell. Basically, he says in the postmodern condition, which is one of the first text to use the phrase postmodern he says the grand narrative has lost its credibility and it's easy to see how some institutions questioned so religion as an institution has historically lost followers over the last few centuries secular ideologies such as marxism have seen to fail when put into practice and the american dream has failed more times than it can count at this point you know <laughs> so yeah. what happens when this skepticism is applied to another far-reaching institution such as the media uh, people are forced to rely on media institutions to give us a, a global global picture of the world we live in like we literally we can't be there for everything sometimes we have to rely on what people are telling us don't we yeah of course i mean we're not omnipresent so we can't see everything all the time so as media audiences have gotten more sophisticated over the years we realize on some level or other the images that we see are being mediated to not necessarily give us the whole story absolutely yeah so then this brings me on to like this kind of anxiety over like what is real and what isn't and this leads me on to another key postmodern thinker my absolute man jean baudouard oh yeah I hope I'm pronouncing that dude's name right. So anyway, he has this brilliant quote. I'm going to give you a moment to get a pen and paper if you want to write this down, because this is awesome. The distinction... (laughs) It's all right, you don't actually have to get a pen and paper out. Oh, is that for me? (laughs) It's not for me. (laughs) I'll just send you my notes, it's fine. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, Baudria had this brilliant quote where he says, The distinction between what is real and what is imagined is continually blurred, and meaning is systematically eroded. So in terms of films, the anxiety over what is real and what's not starts to get to to turn up in films like The Matrix or The Truman Show or Inception. Do you remember when Cobb's wife in Inception, she wants to live in the dream world because she believes that that's the real world to her, you know? Yeah, the dream became her reality. That's such a sad part of that film as well. It really got me that. Oh, yeah. Spoilers for Inception, by the way. Um... (laughs) So, like, what happens when your main character is, like, too attached to this simulated world? Well, Baudra puts it in this way. He says, the simulations of reality end up becoming more real than real. And a really, really good example of this from recent times, did you see uh, WandaVision? Oh, did I? What a great show. (laughs) I absolutely loved it. It was wonderful. It was amazing, wasn't it? So again, spoilers for Wanda Vision if you haven't um, if you haven't seen it already. But Wanda, basically, whilst dealing with trauma, she reinvents this small town of Westview into like a like a sort of nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties sitcom. And Vision, who has been killed by Thanos. Again, spoilers for Infinity War. We've uh, had a few years now, though, you know what I yeah, mean? So. Yeah, if you, if you haven't seen Infinity War by now, that that's on you. That is all on you, okay? <laughs> 
so she, what she does in that is that she creates her own version of vision like entirely from scratch and essentially making him here's a word you're gonna like a simulacrum of the original vision Ooh, um, that's a good word <laughs> yeah but it's a it's a very faithful copy and then he ends up becoming more more real than real to her do you know what i mean yeah he ends up becoming sort of almost like a comfort because even though he's not the real vision he's just as real to her because she doesn't want to accept that he's gone absolutely so you get to see that sort of more real and real anxiety shown brilliantly there i mean if you wanted to see anything else you could look at shows like humans or you could look at films like blade runner or battlestar galactica or westworld this constant anxiety about what's real and who's real and the Mm. fact that in a lot of cases we find it easier to empathize with characters than real human beings do you know what i mean yeah absolutely when we get to the heart of it here's what i really like about postmodernism is that it's actually really so much fun, okay? It can be used to be, like, groundbreaking and traditional at the same time. We have films that seem to jump between postmodern and traditional like an aggressive game of hopscotch, okay? (laughs) One of the most postmodern, metatextual, intertextual films you're going to see is Deadpool, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. Man's the king of it. He's got metatextual quips. He's got references to, like, the Green Lantern film or the other things, the rest of it. So really sort of pushing the boundaries in a lot of areas, right? And, yeah, yeah, he's still a charismatic hero that gets powers, fights bad guys, and gets the girl at the end. You couldn't get much more traditional of a storyline if you tried. It's a traditional storyline with a completely non-traditional character, with powers, with the power of metatextuality. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous. Absolutely. So when I said that that you could sum up postmodernism in six seconds... We're going to do that now. Okay, you ready? Oh, this oh is... no. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> all right, go on then. Here we go. Postmodernism is a cultural movement that distrusts all established philosophies and frequently experiments with the medium it is presented in. Write that one down, listen to it again, and when your teacher asks you, say that one to them, you will sound really smart, I promise you. I, I already feel smarter having listened to it. So, you know, you you, you want to get that one written down. It's, that's really good. <laughs> Does that sum it up then? Do you feel confident that you, you get a better understanding of, of postmodernism? Yeah, much more than I did when I first started. Again, like, you know, you've I think you've uh, managed to sum it up quite nicely. I think being able to sort of, to be able to attach that movement to like modern piece of art and film and such that, um, that you can, that you may have seen and being able to recognise it, I think that really helps as well. Absolutely. So, guys, we've got a homework question for you, one for you to study up in your own time. What film or TV shows from the last five years can you think of that has either intertextuality, metatextuality, or any other postmodern concepts? That's what I want you to look at for me. Okay? Now it's time to hear about the new issue of Media Magazine. And here to tell us about issue 77 is our editor-in-chief and fearless leader, the Perry White to our Clark Kent and Lois Lane, Claire Pollard. Hi. Hi, Claire. How are you doing today? Hi, Claire. I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Yeah, we're doing good. Not bad. So we have a Viking on the front cover. We do have a Viking. Yeah, this is uh, Ivor from Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Uh, Mm -hmm. Either of you gamers, have you played it? I haven't played it, but I'm an avid gamer. 
I, I really want to get a hold of this one because it looks awesome. It does look great. The images we've got for it are fantastic. So yeah, it's written by um, Ricky Kingshot and this is a new set text for students who are studying A-level media studies with Educas. It's a really great article. The thing that jumped out for me is that, that you can choose the gender of the main character. So you're Ivor, whether you're Lady Ivor or Gentleman Ivor. And the story's the same, the events are the same, the kind of character has the same characteristics, but the gender is interchangeable and you could switch halfway through as well which I thought was really interesting awesome that is interesting that you can switch halfway through do you want to tell us about the WandaVision article do you know what I had media teachers tripping over themselves to pitch yeah. pieces about WandaVision I think you were one of those Charles, I absolutely was one of those those <laughs> teachers uh, I was like oh oh do you want to talk about and so yeah Caroline Reed got in there before me so she is now my nemesis uh, she was quick off the mark I think like at the end of episode one she must have like had the email up and was um was pitching she's like i still don't know what it's going to be because i've got to watch several more episodes but can i bag see it so um that's what happened i just love the idea that she's sort of constructing this whole kind of narrative within her own kind of internal psyche and that even Mm. the adverts kind of reflect her experiences one of the things that got me about caroline reed's article was the way that fans were approaching it they were like could this be mephisto or could that be mephisto and everyone's trying to take something from it from their own selves and their own and she linked it in with uses and gratifications and I was like damn I wish I'd thought about that that's an awesome one (laughs) I think if you're a big fan then there's a lot of easter eggs and kind of references in there that you get but she assured me that even as a Marvel idiot I would still probably really enjoy it what I do love is sitcoms and this idea of kind of reflecting the evolution of sitcoms throughout the ages is something that also really appealed to me we managed to get loads of media teachers um, to just write tiny little kind of theory paragraphs like for the sidebar so you're in there we've got one on kind of gender so we managed to get a few different perspectives in on that on that particular show even if you're not versed in the marvel universe it's still a great mystery it's got so many great plot points in there and so much intrigue that can just draw you in whether you're a fan of the series or not as a whole as far the universe as a whole and um, it's a great text to be able to sort of like really get your teeth into especially if you study media what else is in there there's a really nice article well nice is an interesting word for me to choose called bad bitches of hip-hop which is about exactly the opposite women not being nice um women being nasty and being confident and body confident and talking Mm -hmm. about sex and it's about how women in the sort of like hip-hop genre are now as open about sex as men have been for years Tilly Sapiano, who wrote that, we had a great email back and forth about this issue of like our, examining our kind of response as women to women who make videos like Cardi B. Our sort of initial response kind of might be, oh, what's she doing? <laughs> um, but then seeing the positives in that and kind of seeing that it's it's the patriarchy that shapes the way that we react to these things initially. I have been a hip-hop fan ever since I heard California Love by Tupac. And (laughs) speaking as an evolved 21st century man who self-identifies as a feminist, the amount of cognitive dissonance to be a hip-hop fan that you have to have is absolutely staggering. Like... I don't agree with it on any level, but oh, flipping heck, those tunes are awesome, though. Sucker for a beat, though, that's the thing. Oh, what, do you mean the sort of masculine hip-hop? Masculine hip-hop? I mean, like, 
like all the ones they're talking about with Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and, and all these ones, they're great, but I'm a, I'm a little bit more 90s. So Lil' Kim was doing this long before anybody else uh, came along and Missy Elliott or DeBrat. So yeah, I don't think you sound old at all because I'm a big Missy Elliott fan. I mean, Phil, you were basically born last week, weren't you? Yeah, no, I'm still learning a lot. Like, walking's been a challenge, and, you know, what is this internet thing? And, of course, you have the Das Films production tips written by my good self. And who's there right on the very last page? Oh, is that me? That is you, my friend. That is what you. What a surprise! <laughs> yes, you can see my uh, you can see my lovely face there in there as well. We're doing examples of how to make a static car look like it's moving. I was really proud of that one. If your media department is a subscriber to Media Magazine, then you'll be able to pick up a copy from all good and evil school or college librarians. And if your school <laughs> is not a subscriber, then just go to www.englishandmedia.co.uk forward slash media hyphen magazine to subscribe and we will say no more about it. Claire, thank you you so much for joining us it's an absolute joy to see you oh great to talk to you both thank good you good to see you claire <laughs> now it's time for <gasps> two minute terminology time two minute this terminology is f- time <laughs> this is where <laughs> phil explains a media concept or a piece of terminology in absolutely no more than two minutes and you will be being timed our first question for this section comes from ellie in whitby Hi Giles and Phil, my name is Ellie and I study media at Brow Persicle of College. I was wondering if you could tell me, what is chiaroscuro? Okay, two minutes on chiaroscuro. Are you ready? I am ready. Three, two, one, go. Chiaroscuro, meaning light dark in Italian, is a lighting technique used in cinematography used to indicate extreme low-key, high-contrast lighting. The technique originates from the use of one of the canonical painting modes of the Renaissance, of the same name, used most famously by painters such as Rembrandt, Caravaggio and Goya. This technique uses an extreme version of a lighting technique I mentioned a moment ago, known as low-key lighting, where the dark parts are very dark and the light parts are very light. Imagine if you switched on one lamp in a room with no windows and all you can see is whatever that lamp, lamp's light touches, and nothing else. That's on the right lines. In cinematography, this was most noticeably used as a visual technique in many films in German Expressionism, an art movement born as the turmoil felt by many artists after World War I. Artists such as Fritz Lang, who created the 1927 science fiction masterpiece Metropolis, um, used this quite a lot as well. In modern day film, this kind of technique has informed many stylistic choices in Western cinema, most notably in film noir and horror. This can be seen in films such as The Third Man, Apocalypse Now and The Maltese Falcon. The most directly intended use of this would be in Kubrick's film of Barry Lyndon from 1975. In that film, he achieved a chiaroscuro effect by lighting the whole film, whole film with candles and using a specially designed camera system that can handle exposing film in low light. This allowed him to create the extreme low-key lighting needed for this effect. Is that you done? No, that's me done. (laughs) One minute and 24 seconds. That is awesome. Well done. Thank you very much. I'm very proud of myself for that. Yeah, that was good. Uh, Do you know what? I was watching St. Maud, a film that came out recently about a uh, a nurse who has mental health problems. And there's lots of chiaroscuro used in there. Really sharp uh, light and and shadows in there. And really evocative. I'm itching to shoot a film myself using a lot of chiaroscuro just because I really like the lighting techniques Mm. and hoping can sort of write that into a uh, into a film that I want to make at some point. Well, it's essentially just not using a fill light a lot of the time, is it? You know, just not yeah, using a fill or, or just, a, just a key a lot of the time. It's literally just using less lights. Mm. If you can use one light and light the whole scene, 
Kiriskuru. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, if you are absolutely strapped for cash and equipment and you can only afford one light, then say you're influenced by German expressionism. That's basically what yeah, we're saying. Yeah, basically. Isn't it? Tell them that Fritz Lang's your boy. That's all you got to say. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome source. Okay, well, that is us done for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us on this first episode. We hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to leave us a review, that would be absolutely fantastic. And we will see you soon. Bye. Bye. The Media Mag podcast is hosted by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our theme tune is composed by Rick Lee. Media Mag podcast is a desk production created for the English Media Centre. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, please tell Phil through the medium of historically accurate cave paintings.